Well, hey, you guys look so refreshed and awake this morning. I tell you what, this is the time change that gets me every single year. I hate losing an hour of sleep, but hopefully you guys will stick with me and not fall asleep on me. Uh, we have family right now that's meeting out in Stone Canyon, Verdigris, our campus is there. So if you would put your hands together and welcome them to our conversation around God's Word today. Now, as parents of two children who are under the age of five, Alice and I have learned the hard way that you never know what's going to come out of your kid's mouth. And you parents in the room, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes your kids can come off with something funny. Sometimes they can say something surprising. Sometimes they can say something that's kind of sweet. Uh, sometimes they really embarrass you. But one thing that's for sure, they're going to catch you off guard eventually. And somebody sent me a video not too long ago, of a mom who shared with her little boy, her son, some pretty exciting news that he was going to get a new sibling, but she, wa she wasn't expecting the reaction he gave at all. Take a look at this video clip. She filmed the whole conversation. I'm pregnant. Aspirated. Amaya. Because because you just got two. So you don't, why do you want to place why you wanna get another baby and just replace one of your babies if there's too much? Oh, baby, we will never replace you and Amaya. You just gonna have another brother or sister that you have to take care of. Well help take care of. That doesn't make no sense. This makes no sense. <laughs> That was exasperating, you know? <laughs> Obviously, mom and son were not on the same page. You know, everyone reacts to life differently. Not everyone has the same response to the same news, the same information, the same life circumstances. And the longer I follow Jesus, the more I realize that to be true. Because we as followers of Jesus, we react to life differently than everyone else. We respond to life situations differently than everyone else. Because think about it. We're people who have hope when others don't have hope. We're people who find meaning in life when others are still searching for something more. We forgive when it's not deserved. We show grace when others shame. We have joy when others simply don't. We love when others run. We serve when others don't even see a need. We persevere when others choose to give up. And there's a reason why we respond to life differently than everyone else. And that reason? It's Jesus. For us, Jesus changes everything. Because we know Him, and because we live in relationship with Him, He is constantly changing us so that we see life, we see people, we see the world around us differently. Paul writes about his relationship with Jesus in Galatians chapter 2. And look at what he says in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Paul here is saying, because I know Jesus, because Jesus is the Lord of my life, nothing is ever going to be the same again. I am never going to be the same again. I'm never going to see life the same again. Now the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who died for me. And I wonder if you can say the same. Is everything different for you 
now that you know Jesus. Because here's the thing. The Bible teaches that Jesus either changes everything or nothing. But he never settles for changing just some things. Let me say that again. Jesus wants to change everything or nothing in your life. He never settles for just changing some things. Now, don't misunderstand me. We have weaker areas of our life than others, and so sometimes Jesus has to do a little bit more work in some areas, but He still wants to change every part of us. And we may be a work in progress, and it may take Him a little bit longer to help us overcome certain weaknesses, but He still wants to be influencing every aspect of our lives, not just part of our lives. Yet sometimes in the church today, I think we settle for treating following Jesus like it's a part-time gig. A few years ago, actually just about a year and a half ago, my parents decided to clean out their basement. And so there was a lot of junk in their basement that belonged to my brother and me, you know, old toys and clothes and different stuff we had. And so my mom called me up one day and said, hey, we got all this stuff, we cleaned our basement, come get it or we're going to throw it away. So uh, Alice and I stopped by with Alex to see what was there, see if there's anything that we wanted. And so there were all these old toys and like I said, old like Halloween costumes and clothes and a lot of fun stuff. So we're going through and we're taking a trip down memory lane and my mom pulls out this uh, Halloween costume that I wore years ago when I was just I was real little, about Alex's age, and it was a cow costume, like a Holstein cow. And so she pulls it out, and she says, you know, this is just Alex's size. He would love it. And so immediately he tried it on. You can go and put the picture up there. He tried it on, and this is what uh, he looked like in the costume. I mean, I, isn't that the cutest cow you've ever seen? You know, I just, I love that picture. By the way, it came in real handy on Chick-fil-A day to get free food. And so we dressed him up and got our free sandwiches. But, uh, so he tried it on. Like I said, that was a costume costume that I used to wear. And it was funny, when my mom brought out the costume, he looked at it for a second, had this puzzled look on his face, and then his face lit up, and he goes, thank you, Grammy, to my mom. Thank you, Grammy. I've always wanted to look like a cow. And I thought, really? Since when? We've never heard that before, but okay. And so for the next several days after that, he continued to want to put on his cow costume. But here's the thing. He would go to his mommy and say, hey, mommy, I want to dress like a cow. And he'd put it on, and then he'd wear it for, I don't know, five, ten minutes, and he was done with it. Okay, I'm going to take it off. And he'd start taking off, you know, the outfit. And then he'd go another couple hours and do whatever he would do. And then he would say, hey, Mommy, I want to be a cow again. And then he'd go put it back on. Hey, have it on for five, ten minutes and take it off again. And this went on for several days until he finally got tired of the costume. You know, sometimes I think that's how we treat following Jesus. As if our Christianity is something that we can just put on whenever we feel like it. Put, put it on whenever we want to. But then take it off whenever we want to. You know, it's Sunday, so it's time to come to church. Got to put my Christianity on. Got to put Jesus on. But then when I go to work, or when I'm with certain friends, or around certain people, we just take him off, and we live as we want to live. And Jesus doesn't want that from us. When it comes to Jesus, he wants all of us, or he wants none of us. And I think the reason why in the church today we've allowed this to happen, we think that this is acceptable, just be able to put our Christianity or take our Christianity on and off whenever we want to, it's because we have a distorted view of Jesus. Our view of Jesus is way too small because here's the thing, how you see Jesus determines how you live life. Because if you really know who Jesus is, and you really understand what He did for you, and you believe everything the Bible says about Him, and you believe He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you have allowed for Him to take up residence in your heart, if all that is true, 
How in the world could you not open up your entire life to him? How could you not let him lead you in every arena of life? How could you just leave him behind at times? If you truly believe he is who he claims to be, then he changes everything or he changes nothing. How you see Jesus determines how you live life. And I think we're going to see that very truth played out in a scene that takes place shortly before Jesus goes to the cross in Matthew chapter 26. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or tablet, this is where we're going to study this morning. And we're going to look at a famous scene. And in this scene, Jesus is actually at a party. He's at a meal that's being thrown in his honor. And this meal takes place only a few days before Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the very last time to die on the cross for all of us. Now, as you read through the Gospels, one thing you will notice is that Jesus really liked a good house party. In fact, over and over and over again, we see Jesus in someone's house, surrounded by people, and there's always a lot of food. Jesus loved a good house party. And in Matthew chapter 26, we find Jesus in the home of a man who simply called Simon the leper. Now, we're not told a whole lot about him, but apparently he's a former leper that probably Jesus healed. And so he's in the home of Simon the leper. There's a party being thrown in his honor, excuse me, and Matthew tells us, Uh, that the disciples were present there as well. But when you look at the parallel account in John's gospel, John lets us know there's a few other people there. John lets us know that Lazarus is there. Now, interestingly, Lazarus has just been brought back from the dead. Remember that story? Lazarus was dead for four days, in the tomb four days, and Jesus comes on the scene and he calls him out of the tomb. So Lazarus has just been brought back from the dead. He's at this party. And also Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they're present as well. So just imagine the guest list here. Just imagine being at this party. Sitting around the table is a former leper who Jesus healed, and also sitting around the table is a former dead guy. I mean, now I've been to some pretty cool parties, but that's an incredible guest list. I mean, can you imagine the conversations that may have taken place around that table? But even though you've got those two famous guys there, really it's a young lady who steals the show. This woman, we're not given her name in Matthew's gospel, but John tells us her name. I've already mentioned her. Her name's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and of Martha as well. And again, I think it's important that you understand the time frame of when this party takes place, when this meal takes place. It takes place in a little village called Bethany. And Bethany was kind of a suburb or a bedroom community of Jerusalem. Most people would make a stop in Bethany before they'd reach Jerusalem. You know, people would travel from long distances. So they would stop in Bethany, take a rest, take a break, and then go on into Jerusalem. And that's what Jesus is apparently doing. And he takes this break again shortly before he goes to the cross. See, Jesus has been warning for some time that something big is getting ready to happen. In fact, he's plainly said, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, but don't worry, I'm going to rise again on the third day. But the disciples, they're not buying it. They don't quite understand what's going on. They don't think he's really going to die. They're questioning him at this moment. They don't get it, but still they know something big is getting ready to happen. In fact, everyone knows something big is getting ready to happen. The Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, they've already put word out. They want Jesus dead. They want him dead at all costs. In fact, if you want to pick up with me at verse 3, look at what the text says in Matthew chapter 26. It says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. They want Jesus dead. 
There are wanted posters up all over Jerusalem and the surrounding areas with Jesus' face on them. And the word on the street is the moment that the Jewish leadership has a chance to snatch Jesus, they're going to get him. So Jesus knows what's getting ready to happen. And shortly before he goes to Jerusalem for the last time, he meets with some of his closest friends, enjoying their company, having a meal together. Matthew 26 lets us know that Jesus is reclining at the table during this meal. And it's interesting, they didn't eat meals in the same way that we do today. Their tables in the ancient Jewish world, they're about a foot and a half off the ground. They're short tables, low to the ground. You didn't sit in chairs, you would actually lay down, you would recline at the table. And you would recline on your left elbow, typically, with your feet behind you, and then you would eat with your right hand. Now, I know that sounds kind of odd to us, but that's what they were used to. And I know you've probably seen Da Vinci's, you know, painting of the Last Supper. They weren't all sitting around a table like that. They were reclining at table, at the table. And so Jesus is reclining at table, at the table, getting ready to eat, maybe already eating, when all of a sudden, Mary walks in the room. Now, this would have been a little bit odd because typically in formal meals, men and women, they did not eat together. But Mary comes in where the men are sitting. She enters from stage left, and she gets down at Jesus' feet and takes the posture of a servant. Let's read and see what happens. Pick up with me in verse 6 of chapter 26. It says, While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. So Mary comes in and she basically pours very expensive perfume, breaks an alabaster jar she had, and pours very expensive perfume on Jesus' head. The other gospel accounts let us know also she washed his feet. Now, in this day and age, it was typical if you were the guest at someone's home, when you entered the home, you would have your feet washed. And sometimes if you were an honored guest, a special guest, you would have your hair washed as well. And this was for practical purposes because in this day and age, the primary mode of transportation was walking. They had dirt roads. And so you would get pretty dirty walking, especially if you came from a long distance. Sometimes your feet would be caked with clay and dirt, and they'd be smelly and all that good stuff. And so before you entered the house, so you wouldn't get the house dirty, it would wash your feet. And they would especially wash your feet if you are getting ready to have a meal. Remember, you're reclining at the table, so they wanted to make sure you were good and clean. So Jesus probably has already had his feet washed, and the other disciples have had their feet washed as well. That was the typical custom. And Jesus probably already had his hair washed washed as well because he would have been an honored guest. He would have been a special guest. But apparently Mary wants to do something extra. The typical basin of water that was used for washing feet was not enough for Jesus, at least in Mary's thought. And so Mary pulls out this alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Now this alabaster jar was probably a family heirloom. Some scholars believe it was her inheritance It was about the size of a Coke can, and it had a long neck on it that was sealed shut on the top because the only way to open it was to break it. You got one use out of it. That that was it. Mark's gospel tells us that this alabaster jar contained a pint of pure nard. Now, nard was really rare in this day and age. It came from plant abstracts that grew in the Himalayan mountains some 3,000 miles away from Bethany. Nard was so rare that this alabaster jar that Mary breaks was worth about a year's wages. So imagine taking all the money that you made last year and pouring it in, trying to squeeze it in that alabaster jar, and then breaking it. 
That's how much that jar was worth. And what's interesting is when Mary breaks this jar and she cleans Jesus' feet and his hair, John 12, 3 tells us that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. How many of you guys have ever been around a junior high guy that has just discovered cologne? Anybody been around a junior high guy that's just discovered cologne? It's like they don't know how to operate the bottle, right? And so you get into a car with them or you're in a room with them and the smell of Stetson just kind of knocks you down. I've been there. I was that guy. I remember when I first started wearing cologne, I got in the car with my dad and he said, get out and go take a bath. He did not want to ride with me because he, that just really messed him up. But uh, that's how I picture the room being. That's how I imagine the room being. The aroma, the smell of this perfume was so strong, it overpowered everything, even the smell of food. And Mary thinks that she's giving a meaningful gift to Jesus. But not everyone present around the table that night thought the same thing. In fact, there were some in the room that probably gave an audible gasp when Mary did this. This was a pretty expensive gift, a pretty extravagant gift. And those who gasped when Mary gave it to Jesus were those who probably knew Jesus better than anyone. Those who had been with him day in and day out. The disciples. Let's read and see what happens, verse 8 of Matthew 26. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. The text says that the disciples, they were indignant when they saw Mary do this. And that word in Greek literally means to become red in your face. You ever been around somebody who's been so mad that their face turns red? These disciples aren't just offended or thinking, well, you know, that, that was silly. Why would she do that? They're mad. Their faces turn red. They're so upset that Mary did this. They saw Mary's deed as a waste. And even though the text seems to indicate that all the disciples saw it as a waste, really, it's Judas who leads the charge. John's gospel tells us this. In John 12, verse 4, it says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So it seems that Judas Iscariot, he's the first to object, and then the other disciples, they jump on the bandwagon. They all ask the same question, why this waste? And let me just ask, have you ever been there? you ever poured your heart and soul into something only for the people around you to say, you're wasting your time? What a waste. When I was in high school, my family took a vacation to California. We went to California for the very first time. And I remember before we left, my mom said, you know, we're from Kentucky. We're going out to California where people are in style and whatever. I want to get new clothes. I want to dress younger when we go to California. We're like, okay, mom, whatever. And so she went to a store, a couple stores, I think, and got some new clothes. And she was so excited about her new outfits. And so we went on this trip. And we're out in California every morning before we would leave the hotel. Mom would come to my dad, my brother, and me. And she would have on her new clothes. And she would say, 
okay, how do I look? And we would say, you look great, Mom. I mean, what else are we going to tell her? You know, you look great, Mom. Way to go. And so she just was so excited to wear these new clothes. And one day when we were out in California, we decided to cross the border and go over into Tijuana, Mexico. We took a, a, a bus, a tour bus, uh, and we went over to Tijuana, Mexico. That was my first time in Tijuana, hopefully my last time in Tijuana. I never want to go again. Uh, I have lost nothing in Tijuana, Mexico. But anyway, we got on this bus. We're waiting for it to take off, and this group of college students, they get on as well. They're going over to Tijuana, probably for a different purpose than us. Uh, but they, they get on the bus, and they sit down right beside us on the bus. They're on the opposite side of the aisle. And this young college-age girl sits down across the aisle from my mom, and she looks right at my mom, and she said, Hey, I really like the clothes you have on. Well, nothing could have made my mom happier. I mean, she was just so excited. She was beaming. She was smiling from ear to ear. My mom tried to stay humble like, oh, thank you, this old thing. I mean, she didn't say that, but still, she just kind of played it off. Oh, thank you. But she was, you could tell, she was just super excited. And then this girl came back. She said, yeah, yeah, I really like that shirt you have on. My grandma has one just like it. And I remember that next morning when we all got ready, mom didn't ask us how she looked. And we said, mom, aren't you going to ask? And she said, at my age, what does it matter? It's just a waste. You ever been there where you've poured your heart and soul, money, energy, time into something only for those around you to make you feel like it was all a waste? Well, I think that's how Mary feels in this moment. She thought she was giving a meaningful gift to Jesus. But everyone who knows Jesus, everyone who's spent all this time with him, knows him better than everyone else, they're all saying, what a waste. And my question to you is, were they right? Was it a waste? Have you ever been accused of wasting your time for Jesus, wasting your energy, wasting your money for Jesus? You ever had somebody look at you, maybe they don't use the word waste, but somebody look at you and say, so you go to church every week? Like you get up and every Sunday morning you set aside that time for church? I mean, you work hard. Don't you need your time to sleep in or time with family? And they just kind of look at you like, why do you do that? You ever had somebody look at you funny because they find out you give money to the church and you support the church's work financially? And it's like, really? You give all that to the church? Why? You ever had somebody look at you and just say, I don't get why you take so much time to serve and whatever. I mean, I do good deeds every now and then, but it seems like you're always doing something for that church, and it just takes way too much of your time. And right now, I wonder if people haven't gone by our church building and seen all the cars in the parking lot and say, well, that's great for them, but I just, I just don't have time for that. As if it's just a waste. Is it a waste? Is what we do here at First Church a waste? Was Mary's gift a waste? Well, it all depends on how you see life. And how you see life all depends on how you see Jesus. Because you see, not everyone in the room thought it was a waste. The disciples did, but apparently the disciples and Jesus are not on the same page. Jesus not only accepts Mary's gift, but Jesus criticizes the disciples for criticizing Mary. Look at what happens in verse 10. Aware of this, aware of the disciples' reaction, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And we're still talking about it in Owasso, Oklahoma today. You're out in Verdigris or Stone Canyon, aren't we? 
It appears that out of all of the people at this party, Mary gets something that no one else does. Mary's on the same page as Jesus. And every time I read this passage, I ask the same question. If I was there that night, if I was around the table that night, whose side would I have been on? If I didn't know the ending, if I didn't know that Jesus was going to take Mary's side, whose side would I have been on? Because I wonder if I would not have been tempted to support the disciples in this. I mean, couldn't the money have been used and given to the poor? I think probably most of us reading this for the first time probably wouldn't expect the answer that Jesus gave. Whose side would you have been on? Well, before you answer that question, I want to look at the three responses we have in this scene. And those three responses are represented on the stage this morning by three chairs. So like I said, they weren't actually sitting in chairs back in this day. They were reclining at the table. But I'm going to bring the imagery into our modern day. And I've got three chairs, and each of these chairs represents a response to what happened that night. And I just want to ask you, what chair are you sitting in? And the first chair that I have on stage with me is reserved for Judas Iscariot. And this chair is the response of absolute rejection. That's Judas. See, Judas is an interesting guy at this meal. And the reason why I say he's an interesting guy or an interesting guest is because he had followed Jesus for three years now. He had witnessed firsthand all the miracles Jesus had performed, and he had listened to Jesus' teachings over and over again. In fact, Judas and the other disciples had just witnessed Jesus bring Lazarus back from the dead, and Lazarus is sitting at the table with them. They're sitting across the table. Judas is sitting across the table from a man who'd been dead for four days that Jesus called out of the grave. And yet, even with all that evidence before Judas... After this meal, a few days after this meal, Judas is going to go to the teachers of the law, to the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, and betray Jesus. Even with all the evidence before him. Why? Because Judas had already decided in his heart that Jesus wasn't the Messiah he was looking for. I'm not sure what Judas expected from the Messiah, but Jesus wasn't it. See, Judas wanted a Messiah, I think, that was going to be a political leader who's going to come in and take over the Roman Empire and allow for the Jews to rule the world. I think that's what Judas honestly wanted. And when he started to realize that that's, that wasn't Jesus' plan, Judas was done with Jesus. He was finished with Jesus. And here's the thing. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, then he's a liar or he's a lunatic. You know, sometimes people will come to me and they will say, you know, I really don't believe Jesus was the Son of God. He was God in flesh, but he was a good moral man, and he gave a lot of good moral teachings. Don't ever tell me that. That's crazy. How can you call somebody a good moral man, and yet that good moral man went around and told everybody he was the Son of God? He's either a liar or he's a lunatic if he's not the Son of God. And Judas realizes this. Judas realizes Jesus isn't the Messiah I'm looking for. And so he's done with him. And here's the thing. If you've got somebody who's lying like that, committing the sin of blasphemy, the Old Testament law says you put him to death. Jesus is going to help with that. He's going to betray Jesus in just a few days from this meal. All the evidence in the world is before him. And yet his mind is made up. In John chapter 12, it reveals Judas's real motivations. Look at what it says in verse 5. Why, this is Judas speaking. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas didn't care about Jesus. 
Judas was worried about the money. He's worried about himself. And this gift that Mary offered Jesus wasn't benefiting him, so in his mind, it was a waste. Judas is selfish. And most of the time, rejection of Jesus, it's selfish in nature. Have you ever known somebody like that who won't open themselves up to Jesus for selfish reasons? They're blinded by self, so they won't open themselves up to who Jesus really is. And so they don't see who Jesus is because they simply don't want to. Now, of course, we see this attitude a lot in the world. But sometimes on a different level, we see this in the church as well. I know people who, at every turn, are rejecting what, a, what churches are trying to do. And they're a part of those churches. Simply because the church is doing something that doesn't benefit them. Simply because they didn't get what they wanted. And so they're going to oppose and reject what the church wants to do in order to carry out the mission of God. See, that's why Judas rejected Jesus. He had all the evidence, but it didn't matter. He was all about himself. And so, since Jesus wasn't going to be his Messiah, he was done with him. Selfish rejection, absolute rejection. But then I've got another chair on stage. And this next chair, well, this chair, it's saved for the rest of the disciples. And I'm going to call the attitude of the rest of the disciples, the response of the rest of the disciples, mediocre devotion or moderate devotion. See, the rest of the disciples, they hadn't out and out rejected Jesus as Lord. In fact, Thomas has just said a little while ago that he's ready to die with Jesus. And Peter, he's still carrying a sword. And you guys probably know when Jesus is arrested in the garden, Peter draws the sword and cuts off the ear of a soldier who came to arrest Jesus. These men haven't rejected Jesus as Lord. So why is it that they jump on the bandwagon and with Judas say, yeah, Mary's gift is a waste? Well, these men were devoted to Jesus, but they were moderately devoted. Their devotion was half-hearted. See, they wanted to honor Jesus, but Mary's gift was just a little much for them. I mean, they loved Jesus and everything, but you know, let's still be sensible about this. Let's not let things get out of hand. Yes, we believe that Jesus is who He says He is, but let's not go too far, too fast, give too much. For the, for the disciples, at least at this point in their lives, a simple basin of water to clean Jesus' feet and hair would have been enough. They were the moderates. Mary's gift was just too extreme. And so they come up with a logical alternative. Hey, this money could have been given to the poor. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, that's a practical response. That's a logical answer. That's a reasonable thought. Let's give this money to the poor. We could better use this money giving it to the poor than wasting it on Jesus. The disciples' attitude is let's follow Jesus, but let's be sensible about it. And guys, I just want to be transparent with you for just a moment. I don't have time to tell you all the excellent, practical, logical, and reasonable reasons I've heard over the years for keeping the church in second gear. God save us from the well-meaning, practical men of moderate devotion. Because they keep the church in second gear forever, not allowing it to reach its God-given potential. Let me give you some examples of this. I remember when I was in Bible college, there was a young girl who was in my class who got engaged to a young man uh, who was studying to be a missionary. And after she got engaged to this uh, young man, she brought him home and met the parents and all that kind of stuff. And they found out that he wanted to be a missionary to a third world country and their daughter was going to marry him and go with him. Well, the parents weren't real happy about that. 
And after they thought about it, they drove down to the campus and they met with this couple. They tried to talk this young man out of going to the mission field. They even offered him money to not go on the mission field. And then when they couldn't convince him, they tried to talk their daughter out of marrying him. And I remember their daughter telling the story that she looked at her parents. She said, Mom, what are you doing? You guys raised me in church and you taught me about Jesus. You sent me to a Christian college. What did you expect? And her parents looked at her and said, Well, we just wanted you to be a good Christian girl. We didn't know you would go to this extreme. Moderate devotion. I sat down with a family member of Allison's one time who was going through some rough stuff, and I asked him about his relationship with Jesus. He said, oh, God, I'm here fine. I said, okay. I said, are you part of a church? And he was just like, oh, well, Sundays, that's my day to hang out with my son. I take him to Denny's every Sunday morning for breakfast, and we hang out there, and we throw waffles at the waitress. I'm thinking, well, I'm sure she loves that. But, you know, we just have a fun time every Sunday morning, and I just don't have time for that. And I said, well, really, I think what you're missing right now is the community of believers. You need to come together with the church, and they can support you and help you, and your son needs that as well. And he looked at me, he said, Chad, listen, God and me are fine. I'm not going to be one of those radical Christians who has to be in church every Sunday. Moderate devotion. I've mentioned before in sermons that when I was in Bible college, I preached at a part-time weekend ministry. And I remember I convinced them, <laughs> they were small country church, I convinced them that we needed a baptistry because they didn't have one in this small little church building. I convinced them we needed a baptistry, so the men decided they had the money, let's build the baptistry, let's put it in. And I noticed that one of our older ladies stopped coming after we decided to build a baptistry. I thought, who's mad about putting in a baptistry? But uh, she stopped coming, so I stopped by one afternoon to visit with her. And I just looked at her and I said, what's going on? How come you haven't been in church? And she said, every time this church builds anything, they always ask me for money. I'm tired of them asking me for money. By the way, this woman was loaded. I say I went to her house. I was in a mansion. She was loaded. And she said, I'm tired of them asking me for money, so I'm not coming back to that baptistry's finished. You know, the church is great unless they ask too much of me. Moderate devotion. I want to follow Jesus, but let's not go to extremes. The problem is, Jesus doesn't accept moderate devotion. In Revelation 3.16, Jesus says, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And the church is full of people who settled for moderate devotions if it's okay, as if it's perfectly acceptable. And the thing is, out of all of these responses, the disciples' response is the only one that doesn't make sense to me. I get why Judas saw Mary's gift as a waste. He's already rejected Jesus. He's ready to betray Jesus. And if you don't believe Jesus is who he claims to be, I get why you see it as a waste. I don't get the disciples, though. If, Je if Jesus really is the Son of God, if he really is the King of kings and the Lord of lords... Isn't he worth everything? Does any gift we give him compare to what he's done for us? It's a disciple's response that doesn't make any sense. And then that leads us to the final response. And the final chair is reserved for Mary, and I'm going to call Mary's response absolute devotion. The alabaster jar that Mary used is probably her most prized possession. Probably the most valuable possession she owned. Like I said, it's probably her inheritance, probably a family heirloom. And her deed was a picture of true worship, a picture of what it really means to follow Jesus. You see, true worship is giving all that we have and all that we are to Jesus in response to all that He is and all that He's done for us. Mary's gift was more than a typical washing. In fact, the way that the gospel writers uh, depict it, it was kind of an anointing. And in the Old Testament, the only people who were anointed 
were kings or priests. See, Mary's been listening. Mary gets what the others don't. She understands that Jesus is the king of kings. She understands that Jesus is the high priest over all. And she may not quite comprehend what's getting ready to take place in a few days, but she knows it's all part of God's plan, and she may not see Jesus much longer. And He is worth everything to her. So she's willing to give Him her most prized possession. Because even that gift, doesn't compare to what he's already done for her and what he's getting ready to do for her. Nothing that she could ever give Jesus is enough compared to what he'd already done, already done and what he was getting ready to do for her. For Mary, this gift wasn't a waste. It was the least she could do. Because Jesus was worth her everything. How you see Jesus determines how you see life. And I just want to ask, what's Jesus worth to you? Because this type of devotion that we see in Mary is not as common in the church as it should be. When I decided to go to Bible college to study to be a preacher, I was changing gears because I had told everybody that I wanted to study law, be an attorney, and then go into politics. That was my life dream. I took a much different path, if you can't tell. But that was my dream. In fact, in my high school yearbook, I was voted most likely to become president of the United States. Uh, didn't happen. Okay. But, and I don't think it's going to happen. But still. Uh, and so I started telling people that I was going to go to Bible college and I was going to be a preacher. And I remember my homeroom teacher came to me and set me down to try to talk me out of it. And she said, Chad, you've got such potential. Don't waste it going to Bible college. Guys, I had an elder in a church, not the church I attended, but an elder in another church who came and talked to me and said, Chad, I wouldn't just get a degree in preaching. You need a double major in something else because you don't want to be stuck preaching. That doesn't make any money. And you need to make sure that, well, actually, he said, you're gifted enough, you can make some money. Elder in a church, why are you wasting your life in ministry? I have a friend who spent some time in Burma, a country formerly called Burma, doing mission work. And on one occasion, he was with some local preachers there, and they crossed the border. He didn't realize it at the time, but they crossed the border, and they went into China. This was several years ago. And in this area of China, if they caught you practicing any type of public religion at all, you were arrested on the spot. So they went into the country of China, and they were going to have a service. And he found this out once he got there, where he was. He didn't even realize where he was at the time. And they were having a worship service in kind of an open-air pavilion. You know, it had a roof and no walls. And they started the service... And my friend said that the people there who had gathered, and there were hundreds of people who had gathered for the service, started to sing. And he said, I had never heard people in church sing so loud. He said, you could hear them singing for miles. He said, I got a little bit nervous because I knew if the government officials heard us, we could be arrested. And he said, I'm looking around. I'm the only American here. I would just disappear. And he turned to one of his buddies, a local preacher, and he said, don't you think we should keep it down a little bit? And this preacher turned to my friend and said, these people would rather die singing praises to Jesus than live not praising Him. Some people would say, what a waste. 
Not in their view. Guys, I want to live my life in such a way that I'm accused time and time again of wasting my life for Jesus. Because I know who He is and nothing that I offer to Him, even my very life, compares to what He has done for me. And if I'm accused over and over again of wasting my life for Jesus, then I know, I know I will have done exactly what I was supposed to do. Let me ask you, what's Jesus worth to you? Which chair would you be sitting in this morning? Today as we come to the close of the message, if you've been sitting back in a pew for weeks, months, maybe years, and kind of just riding the fence, you've been in that middle chair of, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you're not really giving your all to Him. Is Jesus worth it to you or not? He's ready to do great things in your life, but maybe you're the one that's holding back. Don't waste your life <laughs> on the stuff of this world. Live for what matters. And today, if you're sitting in this room or you're one of our campuses and you have never accepted Jesus, Lord, and you've been coming and you've been hearing about Jesus and you've been thinking about it, what's He worth to you? If you know who He is and you believe what the Bible says about Him, what are you waiting for? Come get baptized. Give your life to Him. Because He gave His life for you. Today, if you want to talk about being baptized, I'm actually not going to be at the hub today. I'm going to be down front. If there's anything else you want to talk about, I'm going to be down front here at the end of service. And we'll have some other staff up here too. If you want to come and talk to somebody, I'll be here. I'll be happy to talk to you about that. But today, if you're somebody who's been thinking about being baptized and maybe you're not ready today, I'm going to let you know about something. On Easter Sunday, we're going to have something special take place. We're going to have what we're going to call baptisms out on the patio, on the patio here at First Church, here at our North Garnett campus. We're going to do that at 3 o'clock on Easter Sunday. Give you time to come to church, go home, have your Easter lunch or brunch or whatever, uh, and then you can come back. And if you've been thinking about being baptized or maybe you need to talk more about it with somebody, we encourage you to come on Easter Sunday. And we hope to have a good group of people who accept their Lord for the first time. Now, if you want to do it today, don't put it off. I'll be down here ready to talk to you. But if you need some time to think about it, talk to some people, do that. Keep in mind something special. Baptism on the patio. I think it's going to be a great moment for our church. But wherever you are today, what's Jesus worth to you? For Mary, he was worth her everything. And I hope you can say the same. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made and the time we have to come together as your people in this place. And Father, I just pray that as we examine this text about the devotion of Mary... Father, we would strive to have that same devotion, absolute devotion to your Son. And we know that that type of devotion, it's uncommon in our church today because we've kind of settled for a mediocre, moderate version of devotion. But, Father, that's not who we want to be as a church. We want to give you our all. And if there's anyone in the room today who's been thinking about being baptized, accepting your Son for the first time, today might be the day. And if, if that's someone in this room today, Father, I pray that you give them the encouragement to come and talk to someone. We'll be down front waiting for them. But if there's others who are just thinking about it right now, Father, continue to put people in their lives that can talk to them about what they need to do and maybe Easter Sunday will be their day where they make the best decision of their life. Father, we just thank you so much for the chance we have to live in your Son. We thank you for everything that Jesus did for us. 
and nothing we do compares to what he has done for us. It's in his name, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.